Well, you've certainly come to the right place at the right time to learn about the world of collecting. I'm Harold Nickel, host of The Collector's Show, and this week, two very well-qualified experts in their respective fields. One, the curator of a museum about musical instruments and printed music, and the other, an expert on wild bird photography, having taken over 8,000 photos. And each of these people comes from very respected and prestigious institutions, but I'm going to let them tell you more about that as we get into the interview segments of the program this week. Next week on The Collector's Show, we'll be joined by a man named Dag Spicer, who is with the National Computer Museum, and we'll learn about collecting computers. And I can confidently make that claim because I've already interviewed Mr. Spicer. Those of you who listen regularly have heard me whine about um, the difficulties of making and keeping appointments with guests. So if you've been disappointed in my uh, program promotions in the past, not to worry this week. We have definitely the National Computer Museum curator, Mr. Dag Spicer, next week. And of course, coming up later in the program, musical instruments and collections of weird birds and weird bird photos. And to learn how those people have their bona fides and why they are so well qualified to talk to us about these respective collections, you're just going to have to stay and listen to the rest of the show. First, of course, the news from the world of collecting. And I discovered typewriter collecting, old mechanical typewriters. This is a story that talks about a website, Machines of Loving Grace. It's about collecting typewriters, and although many young people today have never used a typewriter, the legacy of the typewriter, one of the most important office machines ever invented, lives on through the use of computer and other similar keyboards. Investors have been working on various writing machines. I'm sorry, that should have been inventors. Inventors have been working on various writing machines since around the 1800s. The first commercially produced typewriter was the Rasmus Mailing Hansen writing ball. First invented in 1865, it somewhat resembled a brass pincushion. The Scholes and Glidden typewriter, which was first produced in 1874, is considered to be the best first modern typewriter. Since those days, several styles have entered the market, resting on what we now know as the common typewriter, although very few people actually use them anymore. However, many people have made a hobby of collecting these old machines, such as Alan Seaver of Rochester, New York. Seaver is an avid collector, and he owns the website that I mentioned a minute ago, Machines of Loving Grace, and he has been collecting typewriters for more than 20 years. In his collection, he says he has accumulated about 180 typewriters. That's a bunch of typewriters. So, news from that website. You can go look yourselves for more about Machines of Loving Grace. And he talks in the article, I won't read the whole thing, about um, how he likes the smell of typewriter oil. Not generally the kind of appeal we discover, but to each his own. Now here's a story about a woman whose hobby is actually helping charities. This is out of uh, Calgary in Alberta, Canada. Six years ago, my husband told me I needed to find a hobby so I wasn't always at work, says Louise 
Nestorinko. It's now become a hobby that's out of control. Louise decided her hobby would be raising money for charity. That sounds like a good idea. So she did some research and found that collecting books and selling them could raise a lot of money. I started going around to garage sales and asking people to donate any books that they didn't sell. Next thing I knew, people started dropping books off where I work at Alberta Computer Cable, she explains. Today, the back warehouse of Alberta Computer Cable is filled with 40,000 books. We get about 1,500 to 2,000 books donated each week. The big joke around the office is that I'm still at work. My hobby actually keeps me at work even longer. I, th I think there's a message in there for um, Mr. Nestorinko who wanted her around more. The project has taken on a life of its own. Shells were built to display the books and genre sections were marked out so people could easily find what they were looking for. It has become a full store. Charities are now invited to come in on weekends and host book sales. Any money made during that sale, they keep. The program is called Books Between Friends, and last year it raised more than $40,000 for charity. Wow. So, you can turn a collection into a fundraiser. You can rediscover old office machinery. And, at the same time, find more creative ways to... Um, Stay away from your husband. So that's it for news from the world of collecting for this week. Coming up next, we're going to learn about musical hobbies and instrument collecting, all here on The Collector Show. Thank you for listening. It's Web Talk Radio, and my name is Harold Nichol. One of the things that's an extreme privilege on the Collector's Show is the opportunity to talk with people who are so extraordinarily well-qualified and really have their bona fides in terms of expertise on different types of collections, and that certainly is the case this week on the Collector's Show. We're very pleased to welcome Doug Wexler. Doug is with the Academy of Natural Sciences and he is the director of the Visual Resources for Ornithology, which is a department at the Academy. And Doug, welcome to The Collector Show. Thank you. Now, um, we're going to talk about photography and bird photography and different things with you today. But first of all, let's talk about your role at such a prestigious organization. What does the director of Vireo do during any given day? Okay. Um, well, first of all, Vario is our bird photograph collection. We have the world's most comprehensive collection of bird photos in the world. And uh, as the director, I um, well, it's a small organization, small department, so uh, I have to do a little bit of everything. Um, the basic tasks are gathering up the pictures from photographers around the world, uh -huh. taking a few myself. And then distributing the pictures, um, we license pictures for use in all kinds of publications and um, websites and, and that sort of thing. We also sell copies for lectures and um, 
the pictures are used online for scientific purposes, or people occasionally come to the collection to look at pictures here. And what's your background? Are you uh, educated uh, in the field of bird study? I have a degree in biology, and uh, most of the projects that I worked on in my early years and, and since then have been related to birds. Okay. I worked as a wildlife biologist in the state of Washington and uh, in, um, in California briefly. I've said before that everyone that I speak to has a, a job that's more fun than mine. I would think that being an outdoor biologist would be pretty darn interesting. Well, it, it is. And, uh, of course, I spend a lot of time in the office, but when I get out in the field, I really enjoy it. And that kind of gets to the whole business of taking pictures of birds and the collection of bird photos at the Academy. Numbers upward of about 150,000, from what I remember seeing. That's right. We have uh, 158,000 pictures total, and then of those, 76,000 are online. Wow. How many did you take? Vireo, V-I-R-E-O. It'll take you right to the collection. And of that number of uh, photos, Doug, how many did you take? I've taken a little over 8,000. Man. Are they all of different birds? Oh, not every one of them. There are are only 10,000 species of birds in the world, give or take a few hundred. Okay. And um, so... Our total collection represents something over 7,000 species. So 8,000 photos that you've taken, 10,000 different types of birds, and you specifically talk about at the Academy and and, um, give a presentation there on weird birds. Uh, uh, I happen to be giving a presentation on weird weird birds (laughs) this weekend. Yeah, that's kind of fun. What? How do you define a weird bird? Well, I guess um, it's very subjective. You, you know, anything that you think is weird is weird because if if you look at a, you know, if it looks like a robin or a chicken, we don't consider that weird. But no, um, what's maybe normal for birds is can be weird in our eyes. So I think things that seem like very strange behavior when compared to other birds or compared to ourselves or um, odd-looking features, bare skin that's brightly colored um, or weird behavior such as strange courtship behavior. Mm -hmm. Birds might do dances. um, They may spread their feathers in very exotic fashion, do little dances, um, do all kinds of Movements. And so maybe for the audience that attends your uh, presentation on weird birds, maybe um, birds that we're not accustomed to seeing here in North America might be a good definition of a weird bird. Uh, for the most part, yeah, I would say for the most part I've covered birds that are not from North America, but there, there are certainly birds in North America that qualify, like the, the prairie chicken, which <laughs> um, inflates these little balloon-like um, air sacs on the side of its head and uh, does a dance in the air or kind of jumps up into the air makes strange noises so uh, so that's the not behavior of turkey vultures is kind of strange too so the dance that the prairie chicken does that's not recreational dancing that's some kind of functional dance courtship dance uh. they um, they have a communal 
courtship area where the males get together and, and do these dances, and the, the female chooses the one that she think is, thinks is, I guess, the best dancer. So it's a dance-off, a talent competition, um, romance, all packed into one. Okay, I'm with you. I think that does indeed count as a weird bird. So when people come to your presentation, what are the kinds of things that you show them in your from your collection of photos of weird birds? Uh, well, um, pictures of black herons feeding. They they spread their wings so that all you see is like an umbrella, and the bird's head is underneath it, looking for fish underneath the shadow. Oh, boy. Um, birds that have um, very short wings, like the flightless cormorant, the Galapagos. Uh, other island birds also have short wings like that. Then um, a cuckoo being fed by a tiny little warbler, where the warbler is actually perched on the cuckoo's head to feed it. There's, I, I thought cuckoos just came in clocks. There's actually a cuckoo bird. Yes, there's a cuckoo bird, and the, the thing that's famous about the cuckoo, at least the old world cuckoo, is that they lay their eggs in other birds' nests. So they leave it up to the other bird to raise the young. And uh, normally the the baby cuckoo will push the other bird out of the nest and then it'll get all the food from the, its host parents. Wow, that's, um, that's pretty Machiavellian for a bird. <laughs> if you're just joining us, it's Web Talk Radio and The Collector Show with Harold Nickel, and we're talking with Doug Wexler about weird birds and his collection of weird birds and photos of birds from all over the world, I'm guessing. Now, if I'm um, interested in photographing birds, what are some things I need to know if I'm just starting with a blank sheet of paper? Okay, well, um, generally, if you want to get good pictures of birds, you need a long lens, something that's fast and, and long, so something like I would say 500 f5.6 is one of, or 500 f4 lens is one of the favorites of bird photographers. It's um, very expensive. Mm. You can get a, a lens that's not quite as fast and still get good pictures, um, but it's a little bit harder. So good equipment is an essential. Yeah. And then you need to be very careful about how you approach the birds, um, not only so that you, you can get close, and, and but also so that you don't disturb them. The purpose of photographing them is generally so that uh, you <clears throat> you can um, conserve the birds rather than uh, disturb them. So that explains the long lens, and you can be uh, a good distance away without bothering them, so to speak. Right. It's both a matter of being able to get close enough and stay far enough away so they're not disturbed. In some cases, you can use short lenses, and uh, certainly on the Galapagos. We have many pictures from the Galapagos taken with very short lenses. Or or you can use a remote camera, set it up next to your feeder with a, a wide-angle lens or something like that. And mm-hmm. Very interesting shots. Of the uh, 8,000 photos that you've taken of birds, do you have any favorites that we can go look at at the uh, Academy of Natural Sciences website? Um, sure. You can look at the black-backed kingfisher. Mm. I have a picture there of a bird coughing up a pellet. They, uh, when they digest, they, they eat mostly insects. They don't eat on, eat fish as much. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, they don't digest the very hardest parts of the exoskeleton of the insect. Right. So they cough it up in a very neat little pellet. <laughs> so I, I was very lucky to capture that moment as the pellet is coming up. That's pretty cool. How long did you have to uh, wait to see that? Uh, well, actually, it, it happened within maybe 15 or 20 minutes of when I was photographing it. That's not bad. Yeah. I, have, I have a vision of you sitting out in the woods for days to wait for that. Well, I, I have um, done that sort of thing. Um, spent a lot of time photographing laughing gulls in New Jersey, and you wait by the nest for something to happen. But usually you don't have to wait forever to get a good shot. You just have to wait forever to get a nice series of good shots. Right. So patience, good equipment, and for people who... knowledge of, of the birds and, and their behavior. Oh, okay. So you want, uh, you know, if I didn't know what that bird was doing as it started retching, mm-hmm. I, I probably would have missed the shot. Right. But I, I kind of had an idea what was coming. Yeah, that's, um, I think, a good point. Maybe to research the kinds of birds that live in your area, know what kinds of unusual behaviors to look for, and then go try to capture that. And then the, the, finally, you need to go someplace where you can get close to the birds. And certain types of places are better than others. Give us an example. In, uh, well, a lot of national wildlife refuges, but also city parks, um, because the birds are most accustomed to people where the where people are uh, where they're in places that people frequent. Right. Right. That's a that's a good point. If they're accustomed to being around other people, they're not going to get spooked so easily um, when you're out there with your with your camera. And you've also written a book. Tell us about that. Uh, well, I've, I've written a number of books, but the, um, the one that's most pertinent to this particular topic is called Bizarre Birds. It's published by Boys Mill Press. Mm-hmm. And this is a book I uh, wrote in 1999. It um, deals with the weird habits and of birds and, and some of the weird features and their adaptations. Photographed in color, I assume? Photographed in color. This, this one includes pictures, uh, many different pictures from our collection. Mm-hmm. And then more recently, I have a book that deals with salt marshes and salt marsh birds and other creatures in the salt marsh. And uh, it's called Marvels in the Muck. Mm-hmm. The Good title. Marsh. Marvels in the Muck. I like the title. Yeah. And where can we get these? Are they available at Amazon or? Uh, Amazon. And um, do you have your own website, or do you just LinkedIn? Give us that. DougWexler.com. And the the spelling of your last name is it's pronounced differently than the way it's spelled. W e c h s l e r. So uh, think if we just Google you, or visit the um, American, or sorry, the Academy of Natural Sciences website, we can. Look at uh, 8,000 of the pictures you've taken of, yeah. of different kinds of birds. So the easiest way to get to the bird pictures on the Academy site is to Google V-I-R-E-O, Vireo, and it'll get you, it'll be the first thing that comes up. Outstanding. Doug, I want to thank you for making time for us today to talk about your work photographing 
birds and introducing us to the hobby of collecting photographs of birds unusual and usual. Stay tuned to The Collector Show. More to come. Well, it's the interview segment of The Collector Show, and this week we're very fortunate to have with us the curator of musical instruments from the National Music Museum at the University of South Dakota, Sarah Richardson joins us. And Sarah, welcome to The Collector's Show. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, before we get too far into the interview, I want to ask you about your job responsibilities as curator of musical instruments. What course of study do you have to uh, have, or what kind of training do you need to become a curator of, of musical instruments? Well, oftentimes, um, to be able to get a positions such as mine, you have to have some kind of training in music and specialization um, in a field of music. And for myself, I have a specialization in the history of musical instruments, which is a field called organology, in which I actually came to the University of South Dakota to get a master's in that field. And the University of South Dakota is the only place in the country that offers that. And so in a museum that has musical instruments, or uh, which many museums in the country do, the people who are curators typically have a musicology degree or an ethnomusicology degree, or they have studied musical instruments in some way within that field. And you likewise studied music before you got your master's? I did. I have, a, I have a degree in music education, and I was a public school teacher before I decided to go into further my studies. So you must, as uh, someone who works in a museum and with a big collection of instruments, you must have an interest in history, anthropology, Definitely. popular it, culture. It, it helps, of course, to just be a person who really enjoys learning all about lots of big ideas and themes and, and trying to know more about history in general. It, it's very helpful. So having that vested interest in, in learning about older parts of culture is, is always helpful. And the collection there at the University of South Dakota, what we know and what people who've listened to this program know is that a lot of the collections that are at museums will start with an individual collector who will donate his or her collection to a museum or a university. Is that how things got started um, at the National Music Museum? It is. We actually started with a collection of instruments that was donated to the University of South Dakota by one gentleman, and his name was Arnie B. Larson. And that gentleman was a band director who, throughout his life, was passionate about musical instruments. And he amassed um, a collection of over 2,000 instruments, which were donated to the university. And the university then, through the help of his son, who's been our director ever since we started, in 1973 established the National Music Museum, which at the time was actually called the Shrine to Music Museum. And uh, for any historian who likes kind of fun little tidbits right. to break out at parties, um, <laughs> it was named the Shrine to Music Museum because in South Dakota, of course, there's Mount Rushmore. And everyone knows Mount Rushmore is Mount Rushmore, but the actual name of the carving is the Shrine to Democracy. 
and so the museum was kind of named in that sort of feeling. Sure. And then after we amassed our, or became a larger and larger collection, the name was changed to the National Museum. But it's catchy and it matches. And until just now, I had no idea that Mount Rushmore was called the Shrine to Democracy. Um, so it makes sense that you guys, though, would... would uh, it has, it, a lot of people here in town still refer to the museum just as the Shrine. So it's kind of like we, we changed our name a, a good 15 years ago, but that's all right. That's, that's how they remember it. So the collection started out with 2,000 instruments that were originally donated and it's grown like crazy. It has grown. Um, the collection now numbers around 14,800 instruments. And these are instruments from all over the world, all time periods. We're not specific to one culture or to one style of instrument. These are a really, it's considered to be one of the most diverse collections in the world. So... Most people, or maybe most Americans, think about brass instruments, trumpets, trombones. What are some of the more unusual instruments that we might not have ever even heard, let alone heard of? Right. Um, Well, for Western instruments, and when we refer to Western instruments, we're referring to European-American instruments. There are all kinds of varieties of musical instruments that may not be played anymore. And for an example, there's a type of instrument called the tromba marina, which was a single-string bowed instrument that was played in the 16th and 17th and 18th century. It kind of died out by that time. Um, So that's that's an instrument we have on display. Also, they've become more popular again, but harpsichords are an instrument, a keyboard instrument, that for the time was the keyboard instrument that you play, but nowadays is, is a very specialized group of people who play harpsichords. So we have a nice collection of harpsichords um, for really unusual instruments. Of course, ones that people are not really familiar with would be instruments from other cultures. And so we have on display instruments from all over the world, including South Pacific and Africa and Asia. Um, I would say... a one that always catches people's attention would be the Tibetan display of instruments. Okay. Tibet has beautifully decorated instruments. And even though they're a landlocked country, the idea of in, uh, integrating shells and ocean type of materials into their instruments is very strong. So we have these really nice horns that are made from conch shells. Oh, boy. Yeah, and then they'll be um, embellished with silver and coral and, and turquoise, so really, really ornate, beautiful instruments. And in addition, they also used um, materials that most people would shy away from now, but they used bones, including human bones, trumpets and drums. That would, uh, I was a trumpet player once upon a time and um, don't recall ever (laughs) seeing or learning about or having the opportunity to play a a human bone trumpet. Trumpet, uh, I know, and it's they look a lot different, obviously, than the trumpets that we play, where they're, they're just one piece of bone that's been carved out, and the, the mouthpiece is, is integral to the instrument, so it's right on the end, and then it's typically a thigh bone, and so where the ball joint is would be where the bell is for the instrument. So My goodness. Mm-hmm. They uh, put a lot of thought into this in terms of materials, but I, I think another thing we can learn from, from this collection is the evolution of 
material science and the way these kinds of instruments were labeled. And I know when we talked earlier, you were telling me about the use of silver in these instruments. Tell, tell us about that. That's true. Um, a lot of times by looking at instruments, you can learn a lot about, like you were saying, the materials used and the techniques that were used. And we were just discussing the use of silver because silver, of course, has always been a precious metal. And depending upon where you lived, the silversmith would stamp the instrument or the article made of silver to ensure that it was actually silver. And these markings help us as curators to date the instruments because the stamps, of course, would change from time period to time period and also from city to city. So you'd be able to learn where this instrument was made and at one point was it made. Um, that would be the same for uh, guild systems. Guild systems were very, very strong throughout Europe, and because of their regulations, they had very specific um, date, not necessarily dating, but signing techniques that they would use on instruments. And so it, even back three, four hundred years ago, there are ways to date these objects. Yeah, prominence is one of the things we also talk about a lot, and it would seem that if there were a certain way to that a certain instrument maker signed his or her work... Um, that recognizing, yeah, that's that's the way to know that you've got an original piece of work versus, um, you know, a knockoff or a counterfeit. Right. Which, of course, then it's also, I mean, it's still very, not necessarily the easiest thing to figure out. I mean, one instrument, of course, everybody thinks of for wanting to have an authentic instrument is the violin. Right. And although there may be a label on the inside that's not necessarily meaning that it's original to the instrument. We get a lot of people who come to the museum with their instruments wanting us to help them determine, you know, who made this instrument. And inside it'll have a label, you know, a Strad. Uh -huh. Not a very, and of right. course people are thinking that, you know, they, here's their retirement fund. Um, but then very closely, if you look underneath, it'll say made in Germany, which yeah. is a really good sign <laughs> that it's not. Yeah, made in Germany. Strad. It was made by... Um, Hans Stradivarius at uh, in his backyard. So, uh, yeah, I I understand that um, you could really get your hopes up if you weren't able to really peek good inside your violin and and uh, you only saw part of that. Talk about uh, dashing your hopes. But on the on on the other hand, do you ever find um, people come in like that and they have something that really is an important work of art or something you'd want at the museum? It's amazing how many people will donate or instruments to us that are just fine, fine examples of musical instruments. We had a gentleman last summer bring in a Civil War era drum that was nicely decorated, and just it was something that his grandfather had given him, and he wanted it to um, to make sure that it would be preserved. And so, just off the street, here comes this gentleman with this drum. Um, people do come in with just really nice examples of musical instruments. You oftentimes never really know what you have until you start looking into its history and its maker and, and to see. And it, it might not necessarily even be an old instrument. Um, if you think of uh, in the 20th century with the development of electronic instruments, a lot of electric guitars have become very, very um, sought-after collector's items. And so those are other instruments that are very popular. Now, at the museum, do you have guitars that were owned by performers that we'd recognize? We do. We do. We have a nice collection of um, guitars, which 
some of them, the big names of the owners would be um, Johnny Cash. Oh, yeah. We have a couple guitars owned by Johnny Cash. We have a guitar owned by his wife, June Carter Cash. Um, we also have a very, very interestingly shaped guitar, and it's in the shape of a crutch. It's an electric lap steel guitar, and it's a crutch because it was made for Barbara Mandrell when she got in a car accident. Mm. And so her friend built her this guitar to help her kind of get a get on stage with both her guitar and her crutch because she had broken her leg. That's good multitasking right there. <laughs> it really is. It's it's fun. It's also powder blue. It's this really interesting looking. <laughs> now, do people look, I mean, to sell things or do they want them uh, appraised so they can go sell them? Or do uh, how do you guys acquire new instruments for the, for the museum? Well, um, as a museum, we are not allowed to do appraisals. Ah. We can give information to help people know what they have, but we cannot actually assign dollar amounts to that. Um, most of the time what people do, especially if they're just wanting information, they want to know how old it is, mm-hmm. you know, what, who made it, stuff like that. And so we're always willing to help with that. Um, people, the collection itself, the way that we've acquired it, has been mostly through donation. Or the museum will actually seek out instruments to fill holes in the collection. So if, if an important maker, if one of their instruments is being sold, say, at an auction house or being sold on eBay, we actually buy quite a few instruments right off of eBay, then we will um, we will actively seek out purchasing that instrument. But I would say the, the vast majority of our collection has been acquired through donation. Yeah, I... We, Two things we talk a lot about on this program is, um, and one of them is eBay. And it seems like no matter what it is in the world of collecting, eBay has it. So um, you're in good company. I think everyone in the show for two years is so far has mentioned eBay. So um, we'll go on there to look for other things. But you had mentioned when we talked earlier about a guitar that had been in a in the movie about Sergeant Pepper's. It was a trumpet. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. That's all right. It was a trumpet that was made um, in the shape of a heart, and it was made as a movie prop for Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band movie. Right. And it's, it's actually not a functional instrument, so it's one of two instruments on display that aren't actually functioning instruments. But it's, it's kind of fun to see the, the tubing, like I said, was in the shape of a heart, but it also has um, S and P in the the outline of the instrument in the tube. I'm sure there was a good reason for that when it was made, but um, I think that movie, now that I think about it, I think that's from the late 70s. Yes, and it unfortunately did not star the Beatles. Yeah. It starred the Bee Gees. <laughs> and um, that's probably why we don't remember a lot about that particular show, but anyway. But it's still, it's still a nice example of pop culture at that time. And it's kind of And you have other examples of other trumpets that were owned by uh, famous performers. Tell us about those. We do. We have, um, well, historically, we have nice instruments that were owned going, we have trumpets that actually go back all the way to the 17th century. But um, for modern players, we have instruments that are from the Frank Holden Company that are prototypes for the instrument that Maynard Ferguson played. Mm-hmm. So if you think of Maynard Ferguson playing his trumpet, and a lot of times, like Dizzy Gillespie, he had a bell that pointed upwards sometimes. Oh, yeah. They call that the banana model. 
And so we have prototypes of that. Then we also have uh, a prototype of an instrument. Now I remember what it's called. It's called a firebird. Ah. And it, it's a trumpet that has a slide in it. And so it's this combination of valve, trumpet, and slide that he would play when he was performing. See, I played the trumpet for a really long time, and I until today I'd never heard of a slide trumpet. Now, and for people who may not know, uh, Maynard Ferguson was a very famous trumpet player. He's um, deceased now, but he was in Stan Kenton's orchestra and, and uh, performed as a solo performer. Um and was very popular in the 1970s. Gillespie has such an interesting, or had, um, his embouchure is just all off. It, it's a mess, isn't it? <laughs> and then, of course, as a, as a player, and you see him with his cheeks all puffed out, that's everything every trumpet player or brass player has been told to never do in their life. But yet, what a fabulous musician. Gosh, the yeah. sound that he could get out of that. With I don't know how he played that <laughs> You know, I and and just kind of messing around. You try to uh, sound like like dizzy, and and all it just ended up was just bad. I I'm like you. I don't know how he got a sound out of I have no idea. out of that <laughs> horn. And if you're just joining us, it's uh, Web Talk Radio and the Collector Show with Harold Nickel. We're talking today with Sarah Richardson, who's the curator of the National Music Museum at the University of South Dakota. Now, for people who come to the museum who are collectors of of music or instruments what are the things that they're looking for more often than not um a person who is has kind of a peaked interest in musical instruments or music a lot of times are to be honest a little overwhelmed when they come in we have we have nine galleries of instruments and so in each of these galleries you can really trace the history and the development of lots of different styles of music and also musical instruments. And so a collector of, say, since we're both trumpet players, a trumpet Mm -hmm. can come in and visually see how an instrument changes from its kind of earliest form all the way up until the modern version that you have today. And so a lot of times when, when people come, they want, you know, want to be able to see that development. And then if you're, uh, Wanting to learn more about it, we have a really wonderful archive that is open to the public with an appointment in which you can do much more research into a particular instrument maker or an instrument type. And so we do get a lot of people who are interested in that kinds of study and will come and, and try to do just more in-depth research into their particular field. And in addition to your collection of instruments, you also have a collection of sheet music. We do. We have a large collection of sheet music um, going back, I think, until about the mid-19th century. And so really nice varieties of sheet music. And uh, we, in addition to sheet music, have quite a bit of band music, so full band scores. We have music from the Civil War, music from the um, silent movie time period, which is always fun to see, you know, these huge... Uh, Wurlitzer organ kind of scores for people to play behind a movie. And so um, really nice examples of all these different types of music that were played, especially in the, the 20th and the 19th century. Now, if, if you could pick one single instrument in the museum and take it home to keep, which one would it be? Well, if I were to take one instrument out of the museum, um, it's a really hard question to, to answer. There are just 
so many wonderful examples here. Um, it's almost impossible to answer that question. I, I probably, unfortunately, want to say I want to take them all. <laughs> of course, can't happen. <laughs> yeah, you'd, it would require a lot more space, probably. Um, it would. It's a lot of space for us to store many of these instruments. Well, maybe something that was owned by like a guy like Maynard Ferguson or somebody like that might. I think that would be fun to. Fun would, to have. It would be wonderful to be able to to try it out too. I mean, we have we have really nice examples of instruments that were played, you know, of course, in all kinds of different time periods, and and to be able to play an instrument, say um, a piano, to play a piano that would have been around during the time of Mozart, and play Mozart on that, or yeah. to play a piano that you know was made in Vienna, which we have an example during the time that Beethoven was living there. So that's another type of instrument that, of course, is always wonderful to hear the music written for that instrument played on that instrument. Now, while he was not an accomplished musician, he was certainly, and remains, very famous. Bill Clinton has an instrument at your uh, museum. Tell us about that. We have, um, it's the presidential saxophone. It was made by the L.A. Sax Company, and it was presented to Bill Clinton as a gift. And... um, it's enameled in red, white, and blue. It has stars on it. And he played it, and then the instrument was uh, donated to our institution. There were 60, I believe, instruments of that style that were made, and this one is serial number number one. That is so cool. Yeah, and it's a lot of fun. It's one of the ones that kids just love to see because it's bright and it's colorful, and then they get to know, oh, well, this was a president's instrument. Yeah, and that would seem to me that it would... Uh you know, be worth coming to the museum just to see that, but there's so many other things. Do you have any kind of special programs coming up in the spring for spring break planners or uh, people who are going to be traveling in the summer you want to tell us about? What we do is uh, we have a very nice concert series that happens. If you're going to come to the museum, of course, come any day. We're open seven days a week, actually. But um, if you get to come around a weekend on Fridays at noon, we have a nice kind of casual lunchtime concert, which is called our Brown Bag Series. Mm -hmm. And it's an hour-long concert in which we get musicians from all over the country and all over the world to come in and and give a presentation or concert either about an instrument or an instrument type or just to play music that they like to play. Um, The nice, well, I, I always really enjoy those concerts when the musicians actually play instruments from the collection. And so we'll have, um, musicians come that will a lot of times will be performing on our keyboard instruments so harpsichords clavichords pianos that date um all the way back to well from the seven, 1700s on are the instruments that we allow to be performed and so those are a really nice kind of one hour snippet where you can really kind of feel how the instruments played and, and hear how it sounds yeah i i can imagine that there would be a quite a deposit for people who want to check out an instrument that was from the 1700s. You probably have to leave more than just your driver's license at the front desk. <laughs> you know, actually, you uh, if you're going to, if you want to play the instrument, it's we don't typically allow people to play the instrument oh, okay. unless they're a performer that's coming in that we've kind of um, contracted to play. Um, but you can hear quite a few of the instruments of uh, through a tour that we have, which is a, a PDA device in which you can watch video and listen to the instruments being played as you walk through the museum. So you can get an example of how they sound 
when you walk through. If I come to see the collection at the museum, how much time am I going to need? A lot of people, well, of course, I think you just, you don't have enough time ever to see everything. But um, most people usually spend about three hours here when they're walking through the museum. So a good half day to really get a good sense of Right. The collection of say, and if you're if you're interested in doing, of course, more research, then you would have to spend or have some more time to go through if you wanted to use our archive. And for people who might want to contact you, can you give us your website? Sure. Our website is nmmusd.org, and that stands for National Music Museum, University of South Dakota. With one of the biggest collections of instruments and music anywhere, the National Music Museum, is at the University of South Dakota. And Sarah Richardson, who is curator, thank you so much for uh, taking time out to be with us on The Collector's Show today. Well, thank you. It was a lot of fun. Stay tuned for more coming up on The Collector's Show. I'm Harold Nickel. It's Web Talk Radio. Don't go anywhere. That's going to do it for another edition of The Collector's Show. I hope you enjoyed listening. Remember, next week we've got... Dag Spicer from the Computer Museum, which is out on the West Coast in Silicon Valley. He's going to introduce us to the hobby of collecting old computers. And another guest already taped and recorded for next week, so I'm also confident about their appearance. We're going to be talking to a representative from the museum in Washington, D.C., about collecting newspaper clips and how significant newspapers and clippings are to the world of collecting. So you won't want to miss that computer collecting and news clip collecting with two more outstanding guests on The Collector Show. In the meantime, please be sure to visit our website, collectorshow.com, and listen to more programs here on Web Talk Radio. Thanks again, and I'll see you next week. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to The Collector's Show. See you next week. If I had a million dollars, I'd buy your love. I'd be rich.